This is a podcast from meow.net. Meow! Connecting people working for cultural democracy in Europe and America, this is a culture of possibility. With Arlene Goldbard and Francois Matarasso. Welcome to episode 37 of A Culture of Possibility, a podcast about cultural democracy and community-based arts and all related things. My co-host Francois Matarasso is taking a bit of a break now, but I'm really, really happy to be here in Lamy, New Mexico, in the southwest of the United States, talking far, far, far away to my guest, David Francis, who's going to introduce himself. Hello, everybody, and uh, hello, Arlene. Um, I'm in Edinburgh in Scotland. I'm right in the heart of Edinburgh, in the old town. Um, I work at the Scottish Storytelling Centre uh, on the Royal Mile. And uh, we're just getting over being buffeted by uh, 100 mile an hour winds and horizontal rain. It's been pretty, uh, pretty stormy of late. But uh, hey, it's winter time in Scotland, so what would you expect? <laughs> <laughs> and climate crisis has nothing to do with it yeah. whatsoever, but it's going to be in the mid 50s this week, so go figure. Um, David, I'm I'm so happy to have you here. You know, David and I met in, I think it was 2012 in Edinburgh when I came to speak at a conference. And I was awfully impressed by the work that he was doing then. And it's so, so great to have a chance to talk to him more about it now. Um, I'm wondering if you can just put people in the picture a little bit. Um, your organization, the whole traditional arts uh a coalition that that it's part of, um, and and what you do. Mm. Uh, yeah. I should say as well that um, although we we met in twenty twelve, I'd I'd been a great admirer of your writing before that, and in fact, um, the new creative community uh, had a tremendous influence on uh, on some of the work that we're still doing, and and just sort of shaped our, our outlook on that. So I thought that was that was worth saying that. <clears throat> well, that's awfully cool to hear. It makes me feel yeah. very good. Thank you, David. Um, so yes, I uh, I'm director of uh, a national network uh, called the the Traditional Music Forum. It's a national network of of individuals and uh, mostly organisations that uh, cover every aspect of 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 uh, traditional music life. So academic departments, um, community music organisations, probably the, the largest sector, um, as well as shading into the, the commercial music industry as well, labels, venues, festivals, all of that. So, yeah, we cover the, the complete um, complete spectrum of, of activity uh, across across that. And uh, it... It's probably a, a feature of of our world and, and our community that a lot of the people who are engaged in the commercial side of things are also engaged in the community side of things. And Schrodinger style can actually um, exist in both in both uh, dimensions simultaneously. So um, yeah, and, and the the forum was was set up. Initially, as an advisory group for the what was then the Scottish Arts Council, and that came on the back of a, a fairly major report that that I authored in the in the late nineteen nineties, which was a pretty comprehensive look at um, at traditional music in Scotland, and um, came at a time when. Uh, the Arts Council, the, the the kind of mainstream arts funding body, was was looking to to bring it in from the margins, as it were, because uh, you know up until the early nineties, uh, their focus had been almost exclusively on um, on, on what you are called the uh, velvet curtain and red carpet side of things. Um, so that was that was fairly major and. Um, <clears throat> From that advisory group, we opened it out to become a membership organisation, 
Uh, and then uh, about 12 years ago, we combined forces with um, with the traditional dance people and the storytelling uh, story people and made this consortium called Traditional Arts and Culture Scotland, uh, of which I'm also a part of the management group for that. So our role is uh, uh, principally advocacy, but uh, we, we have a, a stake in in uh, education, community, cultural development. And, and in fact, for tracks, that has been a, a pivot towards um, community cultural development through the medium of um, intangible cultural heritage, if that doesn't sound like too much of a mouthful. Um, and tracks is traditional arts and culture, Scotland. Arts and culture yeah. Scotland. Is uh-huh. that right? Yeah. So the three, the dance, the yeah. storytelling, and the music are under and that umbrella. Probably soon to be joined by traditional craft as well. Yeah. Uh-huh. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm going to ask you more about intangible culture and, and all the policy questions a little down the road, but I, I, I want you to tell people about two other things first. Um, one is, I, I heard a rumor that you, yourself, are a musician, and you neglected to mention that in your self-introduction. <laughs> so could you toot your own horn a little yeah, bit now? Yeah, um, I, I play music, and uh, I'm a songwriter uh, as well. And uh, I was a professional musician uh, for many years. I, I worked in a duo with my wife, Mary Campbell. Um, we had a kind of... Um, we had a, a sort of brief moment in the light, limelight when uh, one of our songs was used in the first Sex in the City movie, which kind of catapulted us to solvency. And, uh, uh, yeah, so uh, we performed at festivals and toured abroad and all of that, you know, and then um, when, our, when our kids came along, I kind of took a, a, a dog leg into um, into arts administration, um, but still still play. You know, I I, I play for dancing. You know, the, um, equivalent of about equivalent of state, uh, square dancing or or contra dancing, and uh, mm-hmm. you know that's that's really how I started. Actually, that's how I got into music in the first place, and it's just always stayed with me because it has such strong roots in in community. You know. Mm-hmm. How did you get into it in the first place? Was there did your family play traditional music or no? Um, it was just kind of there in the in the in the background. Um, you know, I I grew up in the in the sixties, so that the whole of that kind of music scene was very very important to me. Um, and I guess in the UK. Um, folk music kind of took its place in that sort of oppositional um, uh, space that, uh, you know, the best the best rock music um, took up. And, uh, you know, folk music was very much part of that. The younger folk musicians looked like rock musicians, you know, they dressed like them. They were um, always looking to uh, to kind of stir things up while still, you know, remaining true to... Um, to to the, the 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 tradition that they felt themselves to be part of, so that was just kind of in the background, and um, and that's that's uh, where my interest started to started to focus, you know, um, away from uh, from rock and roll and much more towards the the um, traditional side of things. Yeah. And when you say traditional music now, like in the traditional music forum, is it primarily people who, um, like yourself, are influenced by Scottish folk music per se? Or are there multiple traditions? Because I know there's folks in Scotland who come from all over yeah, the world. Yeah, um, it's mostly mostly Scottish, uh, tra- you know, because we have very rich instrumental tradition, you know, through, through the fiddle and the the bagpipes as well as a, a very strong um, song tradition. The term traditional music has become the kind of default term to it um, because folk music, um, I think especially in the in the US, has come to mean just like anybody who plays an acoustic guitar effectively or 
um, sings their own stuff to the accompaniment of the acoustic guitar. Um, but traditional music is is very much the the uh, preferred term because it makes it makes that distinction. You know, it sort of has that reach into the past that that mm -hmm. um, folk music. Well, we still talk about that, but um, I think in general parlance, when you talk about folk music, that people think about that kind of acoustic. Somebody in a coffee, coffee house. house thing, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. And, and you, I, I think before we began recording, you were mentioning that um, in the nature of the traditional music scene in Scotland, there there's a very wide range of practices from people who are playing for a few individuals in in a in live in a space to people who have a recording career mm -hmm. of some kind mm -hmm. and you know i'm i'm wondering about that your take on that that question about tradition and renewal mm -hmm. you know this is great definition of cultural democracy from francis johnson which i'm paraphrasing but he says basically it's to inherit the legacy uh, excuse me, to reinvent the legacy inherited from the past for the benefit of the living. Mm -hmm. And and I'm wondering, how much are we talking about, like, renewal, reinvention, and how much are we talking about preservation? I I think it is, most of the activity is on the, the sort of renewal and reinvention side of things. There's a tremendous amount of, of music written in the idiom. Um, and and I think that people write in the in the idiom, uh, but always in the back of their mind as as a reference to to the tradition, and it and it's become a a kind of point of identity. I think for a lot of young musicians, that even though they're not, they may have been brought up with a sort of purely traditional music, um, that has been a, a kind of an anchor for them. Uh, and they're they're able to to use that to uh, to thoroughly understand the idiom and then go away and 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 um, uh, look at it afresh, you know. And uh, you know we've got lots of bands with with bass and drums and and all of that, you know, uh, but who are fronted by traditional traditional instruments and and I think. Even though the sound that comes out can sometimes sound as if it's a bit distant from the music that it's rooted in, uh, I, I think uh, uh, the fact that that they use those instruments and, and have those cultural references is a, a really important kind of identity marker for people, especially young mm -hmm. people. And and a kind of dialogue, I think, a kind of conversation that goes yeah. on between the past and the present. Yeah, and and you'll find as well that you know with a lot of musicians, even if they're, um, you know, there's 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 some musicians who are who are very much in that sort of commercial mainstream, uh, and others who are maybe experimenting with with composing long form uh music that's that sort of draws on 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 tradition but in either case you know if you said to them could you could you play a uh uh an old song or an old traditional fiddle tune or whatever you know they'd be able to do it because it's it's just part of their part of their um cultural armory yeah yeah, the um, listeners, I'm, I'm going to put a bunch of URLs for you in uh, the listing on meow.net. But uh, if you go to traditionalmusicforum.org, one thing you can do is click through this long list of musicians and, and find out a little bit about their work. And it was, I, I really enjoyed doing mm. that. It was a, quite a, quite a um, diverse group of of you know, musicians in terms of self-presentation and practices yeah. and stuff like that. And there's a lot of other great stuff at the site, so we'll be sure to, to direct people to those mm -hmm. things. I guess one more kind of background question I wanted to ask you, David, had to do with, with Scotland itself. Um, you know, I'm, it, I, everybody who's ever read the headlines knows that there's a conversation about independence from from the United Kingdom and 
referenda have gone on and there's linguistic, you know, controversies or polls of opinion. And, you know, in my minute I spent in Scotland, I certainly got um, a strong feeling for uh, the degree to which uh, the cultural identity with Scotland is strong, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, that, that it's not, it's not exactly like in America, there's a certain, I'm an American and you, you get a patriotic hit, you know, you see a, a flag waving in the background. That's not exactly the, the way I felt about it. And I also observed uh, again in a minute that, um, the country being small, that there was a lot of interaction between people in different sectors. I remember going for coffee one day, and I think we ran into the education minister, and you had a little chat about something. So um, tell people a little bit about the culture of the place, which is the territory that you guys are working in terms of traditional uh, mm-hmm. art forms. Yeah, um, yeah. so we're, we're we're working very much in, in that um I don't like the word sector, but it's it's kind of what we, what we often come up against. Um, uh, although we're working in that that traditional art sector, we're very much part of the wider cultural um, uh, sphere, and uh, which is really one of the things that that I set out to do uh, way back um, when I was. Uh, producing that that report back in 1999 was to was to connect up um, traditional music and traditional arts with the wider uh, wider concerns because you know if culture's under attack then you know we're under attack as a part of that if music education is under attack that affects us as well so we you know we have to make these alliances um, in order to um, to, to protect our, our mutual interests. And as you say, Scotland's a small country. It's only five, six million people. So it's very easy to, to get to know, uh, p- people that are, that are working in kind of adjacent spheres, as it were. And we've very much become, um, embedded on, in those areas, like, you know, cultural advocacy and, and music education, uh, and, and so on. Um, <clears throat> we have a cross-party group on music, for example, uh, at the Scottish Parliament, which uh, of which we are the secretary. And uh, you find you you'll go to that those meetings, and you'll see the same people at um, at music education meetings, or or uh, community meetings, or you know, or whatever. You know, so there's a very much a sense of a. Um, of a community of, of people that, that's, that's enabled uh, by the size of the country, really. And there's much more direct communication with, with politicians. I mean, where, where my office is here, where I'm speaking to you from, is like 500 yards from the Parliament building. So, uh, you know, it's, it's very accessible in that sense. But also... Uh, I mean, there's been a huge difference since since um, uh, since the parliament was devolved. Um, we're not completely independent, but we are devolved from from the UK Parliament. Uh, and in 1999, uh, that happened. And prior to that, the chances of of, of talking to a, a a Scottish minister or a UK minister was, you know, they felt very very remote. Um, but what devolution has done is has brought the politicians much closer uh, to to people, and um, yeah, and there's a kind of informality about um, about relationships between uh, between the politicians and and you know the likes of ourselves who are part of that kind of yeah. advocacy sphere. Yeah. And and what about I'm I'm kind of jumping ahead because. We're talking about this, so I'm going to ask you a little bit more about it, and then I'm going to come back and ask you more specifically about the traditional music forum. But I noticed that your name, you've been in a lot of working groups, your name was on a lot of reports, and, and, you know, they all had, like all the listeners who are interested in cultural democracy know, uh, the aim of... having more resources flow to cultural spheres that are under-resourced by the commercial mm. world, um, 
or you know the 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 major like philanthropies and and things like that equity you know better educational systems more encouragement for people to learn i mean in, in as we as many of us are familiar with you know we we generate these lists of recommendations and i think maybe there's more chance of people listening to those in scotland than the deaf ears upon which my recommendations have fallen for these many decades. But, yeah. you know, I'm also, I'm interested in that and I'm interested in your mm. own, I mean, I know it's related partly to that you have a role as as the head of the traditional music forum of, of advocating for the sphere. I'm going to pick up your language instead of sector. Um, but also I think you have a, you have a feeling of wanting to be engaged in that discourse and wanting to have an influence that may be independent from your position. And as I mentioned to you before we started recording, it seems like the folks we've talked to are divided between these two groups, people like that. That's my religion too. And over here is, um, you know, people who are giving everything they can to do their yeah, work, yeah. but they, they, they don't look, aren't able or willing or it's not a priority to look outside. Mm. So talk a little bit about that aspect of of, of what you've been doing, um, trying to influence policy. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, my kind of slightly flip uh, motto is, that I, you know, I say to people, I go to meetings so that you don't have to. Um, so, you know, so people can get on with their with their creative work, but in the knowledge that there's somebody there who's kind of gone into bat for them um, with with the ministers and the civil servants uh, and all the rest of it. I mean, I wouldn't want to paint too rosy a picture of, of um, what it's like here. Um, I mean, Scotland spends one of the lowest percentages of its of, of its budget on culture of any country in Europe. Uh, I mean, our one of our advocacy aims is is to get the Scottish government to spend one percent of its budget on culture, which would be about uh, five hundred and fifty million pounds, something like that. Um, and at the moment, it spends point five seven percent of its budget on culture. So there's there's a fair way to go, and um, because of the way that the Scottish government itself is is funded, it suffers very much from the uh, austerity program of of the of the UK government. So um, Scottish government can't generate its own money in the way that that the UK government or the US government can say it's 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 very much dependent on uh, the block grant that it gets and uh, it's got a little bit of taxation powers but in in every respect it's like a it's like a local council or you know or a, or, or a state in 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 the US so that's uh, that's a major barrier you know that we can be advocating for more resources and more money and so on, but uh, we do that in the in the kind of frustrating knowledge that that the Scottish government's hands are uh, are, are are tied. But having said that, I I think um, uh, the uh, in in our uh, in our neck of the woods we we have made a tremendous. Uh, a tremendous amount of insight, uh, um, progress in terms of, of, of just getting traditional arts to become more uh, a, a part of the of, 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 of the mainstream and, and feel less kind of uh, marginal and, and underground in a way that it maybe was um, before. Uh, so it, it's and I think these things go go hand in hand with with the, the the push to devolution and the 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 push to independence and so on. It's become part of the part of the cultural um, cultural fabric. I mean, when you were here in twenty twelve, uh, you were here at a very good time because the 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 referendum on independence took place in in twenty fourteen. So when you were here, it was just things were just really starting to to ramp up. 
Um, and uh, you know, I have to say that I, you know, I'm a supporter of uh, of, uh, of of Scottish independence, but uh, the loss in 2014, I think that was kind of our moment. I think it's going to be a long time before uh, before we see another moment like that, it's especially since the, the Scottish government seems at the moment to be uh, imploding. <laughs> so, uh, and there's a general election coming up in the UK in the certainly in the next nine months to a year. So uh, I have a feeling the landscape's going to shift a little bit, uh, possibly yeah. away from from independence. But culturally, you know, the 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 markers have been put down. So, so even uh, even though the the prospect of independence uh, is receding, you know, we're we're still culturally distinctive uh, and I, yeah. uh, and always you know and, and it's that's not going to change that's not going to shift yeah I, I I forget which which uh, cultural policy maker I'm quoting when I'm uh, saying that they sort of culture is our reasons for living and for dying but um, still seems true yeah. you know there's definitely a lot of implosion going around, though. You know, we're just about to have Trump crowned, you know, heir apparent, which terrifies me. Oh, and uh, just to put a reality check on it, the National Endowment for the Arts, which is the federal agency um, for the United States, and our population is well over 300 million. It's close to 350 million right now. The uh, allocation for the NA is less than than the 270 uh, pounds that you said was 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 a Scottish budget, so isn't that awful? Yeah. But anyway, that's not what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, let, let's, let's go back a little bit, David, to traditional music form, because I, I really want people to hear about, I mean, when I, when I look at the website, it, the programs seem very organic in the sense of they seem to be responding to what musicians and groups told you about what they want and what they need and what would be helpful and tell that story a little bit like what you all do and how that evolved yeah, uh, I think um, well I was involved in a, in a couple of you know fairly sizable um, pieces of work in terms of reporting either to the what was then the Scottish Arts Council or, or to the to the culture minister and um, I guess part of the traditional music forums, Work is to is to take those recommendations that came out of those reports and 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 try and see them through, and it's interesting that we're still working on aspects of the of the recommendations that came out of the nineteen ninety nine report twenty five years later. You know, it does take time for these things um, to come through. But uh, really, what we're uh, we're engaged in, in really sort of three separate uh, three separate areas. One is um, what I might call uh, the cultural memory, um, the previous, uh, uh, which is what I refer to it sometimes. It, because that word "previous," the, you know, the 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 vi part of it is from the old Latin word for for way or path. So it's the paths that we were on before. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, that kind of links into uh, to, to participation, and uh, which is the sort of educational side of things. You know, the, the teaching that enables people to, to explore the past, to acquire the skills, to enable them to express it. And then that goes through into into performance, into into platforms, uh, which is the much more the kind of uh, commercial side of the thing. So these are the three main areas that that we're dealing with. So cultural memory, um, uh, archives, old collections, uh, and also the the knowledge that's that's kept you know inside people's heads is a big part of that as well because you know we must never forget that we're dealing with uh, an oral tradition in in large respect you know and the performance side of things is uh, the uh, participation side of things covers both non-formal and formal 
education. So, uh, you know, we advocate for uh, teaching uh, traditional music on traditional instruments in the formal school system. Uh, but alongside that, um, we're looking to, to continually develop in the non-formal sector, which is very strong here, uh, the, the kind of community music side of things is very strong. And what we're now finding are pathways uh, that, that, pe that people can take from non-formal uh, education, which is maybe where they get their first exposure to the music, uh, you know, along with their, their peers. Um, and uh, and that can be part of a the, the 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 start of a pathway from from that into formal education and then on into into a professional career if you want to do that. But of course, the thing about the pathways is you can step off the path at any point. You know, it doesn't. You don't have to necessarily see a professional career as the end point. You know, because the more people that we have learning traditional music and then playing it in, in their communities, you know, the, the more of a contribution that we can make to conviviality and, um, and, and community sharing. So, uh, so that, that's a, a very important aspect uh, of our work is, is to, uh, is to encourage that. Uh, and it's, I think the last count we had over 20,000 people uh, learning traditional music in non-formal settings, which is, you know, a sizable chunk of, uh, of the population. And, and most of them were young people as well. And, uh, you know, and, and in terms of the ecology uh, of traditional music, that very uh, active and rich community music seen uh, provides employment for musicians as well you know for people who want to to make a, a you know let's say make a career of it but actually who want to kind of see themselves as as artists and devote their time to it um, I think that's the important thing it's like it, it, you have to earn the money but it's I think for most people what drives them is the, the sort of artistic imperative and having these teaching opportunities enables people to do that. Um, and then in terms of platforms, you know, the, the, the festival scene is very important because again, that ties back into, into community. Uh, and, you know, although it has its commercial aspects, um, uh, that sort of sense of, of, of community and actually, uh, bringing the music to people in their own place, I think, is a really important part of that. So that's it. Tell a little bit about the festival. Uh, well, the the festivals actually uh, they range from from small town festivals where you know the, the whole weekend in a small town would be given over to traditional music so every hall would be filled with music and uh, you know, there would be music in the square if there's a town square um, and then there's one or two large kind of open air festivals but probably the the the, the daddy of them all is Celtic Connections which uh, is running just now in Glasgow and it's a it's a two and a half week mm. festival which is um very, and it, it actually embodies a lot of the, uh, the, the, the breadth of activity that I'm talking about, you know, because there are, there are educational events as part of it. They have real top level, um, performers at, at, at one end of it and, uh, uh, opportunities for rising artists, uh, at, as part of it as well. And that the key thing about that is it is subsidized. By it's it's a big festival, you know. They they'll maybe sell one hundred and fifty thousand tickets for it over the course of the two and a half weeks, um, but it's backed up by by the city council in Glasgow, which is what makes it you know makes it possible. So it's it's that it's that mix of of um, commercial income, but but with the uh, the very necessary backstop of public subsidy. 
um, which is a a kind of recurring theme in the in the in the policy world as well. You know, we see that in um, all sorts of areas. You know, transport, health, and so on. Where the neoliberal agenda would be just to kind of completely unmoor it from public subsidy and let it find its own level, but you know we know what the consequences of that are. You know that 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 neoliberal notion is just nonsense at the end of the day. Yeah, brutal, pretty yeah. brutal. The um, what do you what accounts for? Well, you you said that. Uh, of the 20,000 people that are participating in, or so people that are participating in community music education, a lot of them are young mm. people. Is that like an uptick or has that always been true? Is there a, a growing or a renewed interest in traditional music among young yeah, people? Very and, much so, yeah, very much And if there is, how's, how's that happening? Um, it, it's, it's partly op- just opportunity. Um, I think uh, we have a, a a movement in Scotland called the Fesh movement, which is is very much based in in Gaelic culture, and the origins of that go back to the early nineteen eighties, um, and the island of Barra, which is uh, in the Western Isles, and the Outer Hebrides on the on the west coast of Scotland, and there there was um, uh, a radical priest. I think his name was Colin McInnes, who had, uh, uh, I think, had had some experience of, of uh, that that movement of I can't remember what it's called now, but um, radical priests in South America. Liberation, liberation theology. theology. Yeah, yeah, and I think he brought some of those ideas back to his own home community and saw that that culture was actually a kind of key. Uh, element of any sort of um, uh, community renewal, um, because at that time, uh, I mean, even, probably even more so than now, Barra was suffering from um, loss of population and uh, you know young people leaving and so on. So he uh, he saw the cultural traditions of the island as maybe a sort of way to address that. So he started up. Uh, a, a fish, uh, which is Gaelic for for festival in in Barra, engaged lots of young people, uh, especially people who'd gone from the island to the cities, who come back for the summer holidays, bringing their children with them, something for them to do, uh, and it just really caught on. And then other communities across the Highlands uh, start to think, well, we could do that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, Francois has actually written about this this movement um, uh, in in one of his reports back you know about thirty years ago or so. Uh, so what we saw there was a kind of huge flowering of of opportunity, you know. And and when young people see other young people doing stuff and enjoying it, you know, they often want to do the same. And uh, what what we've found is that the since those early days, um, that the the uh, standard of playing and musicianship amongst young people has just been exponential, you know, partly because they egg each other on. Uh, there's an element of competition there, but also because of things like YouTube, where uh, you know they can they can fill in the gaps uh, through their own their own explorations and. Uh, um, Learn stuff on the on on their own account, um, but the result is that you know we have a a really thriving cohort of of of, of young musicians who've come up through that uh, through that non formal pathway. So, in answer to your question, I'd say it was it was opportunity, and that's that's really how the the opportunities grew, kind of organically, really. I, I like the the fact that um, technology, which we all love to use and 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 hate to think about, <laughs> is is a, is a can be a positive influencer. I'm thinking, folks in the Appalachian region of the United States, um, where there's a lot of what they call Scotch Irish yeah. uh, her, heritage, um, 
they've, they've been developing this hybrid music that they call hill hop. Uh, you know, hillbilly <laughs> is sometimes pejorative and sometimes not, but hip hop, you know, it just made a nice little composite word there. And clearly YouTube has been a big influence on, on, on that movement too, you know, the hybridization of, of music that people wouldn't necessarily have a chance to experience mm. Uh, mm. Uh, otherwise. Yeah. You know, one thing that, that caught my uh, eye when I was looking at your website was the code of practice. Mm. Uh, that you have there because you know I'm a big ethics fanatic and I, I like people to talk about like what what are the ethical ways to do the work that we do and it seemed like you had something really good there could you say a little bit about that yeah that that came about um, because the, there'd been a long in 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 conjunction with this development of of non formal uh, education that was really being delivered by people with um, who just did it because they were asked to do it, you know, and, and didn't necessarily have any any training or formal qualifications in it, and so that led to a a, a very long running debate about the place of formal qualifications in a style of music that really sort of thrives on on informality. It's you know it's very much part of of what traditional music and folk music is, and this went back and forth for. Uh, a, a number of years, there were a couple of attempts to to set up light touch um, formal qualifications that didn't really come to anything because you know the musicians weren't really that interested. I don't think. Um, so uh, I had been reading some uh, an article about about the. Uh, advantages of of uh, self-reflection in education and I, and it occurred to me that actually this this was the key to the question was that not to impose external standards but to actually give people the skills to be able to to reflect uh, themselves on their work um, and uh, so that that we made that code of practice and uh, a quality framework that was not an externally imposed quality framework, but something that that musicians could use, uh, learners could use, and the commissioning organisations, that's the link between the learner and and the the teacher, could also use. You know, depending on which lens you were looking through, you, you... have a set of questions that you can ask to encourage that sort of self-reflection. And uh, the code of practice um, became a part of that that quality framework, the the thing that kind of underpinned the the quality framework. So I I think that, yeah, that's that's something that I'm I'm particularly particularly proud of and, and, uh, you know, organisation, non-formal organisations can use that uh, without any of the uh, the strictures of of some sort of formal ed- uh, accreditation system. Yeah, you know, I remember, and this, this is such a long time ago that I think things have changed, but I remember talking to a woman who had really uh, strong experience, long experience, uh, was was considered to be you know, effective at what she was doing in terms of informal community-based uh, music education and, and music making and so forth. And I remember she came up to me in this in a break of something and she said, you know, this is what I want to do. She said, but I haven't really got the qualification. And the, the word qualification, it isn't used as much in American English. I didn't realize she was talking about a certificate or a degree mm-hmm. or something like that. And so I probed, you know, I was trying to get what, what she was saying. And, and then she explained and she was saying, is it worth it to, to spend the money, spend the time, go to school, get this, you know, what, what, what's going to, and we talked about, you know, how do you evaluate what, is it, is it worth the price of a ticket? What might be waiting at the other end? You know, what, what are the other paths you can go on? But I remember noticing that, um, not just in Scotland, but you know, in in that whole region of of the world, uh, there there's a there's a lot more formal barriers to doing certain kinds of work than I've noticed mm. uh, is typically true 
here. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I'm a big believer in self-education since I'm, uh, I, I taught myself to read, basically, but, um, uh, and informal education. So I just really liked w- w- what you were doing there. And I think it would be, if I think back to that woman, I think it would be inspiriting mm. to that person to see the recognition of the value that's, that's portrayed in the code of practice, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that, that pops to your mind? Well, let, let me just mention something to our listeners, because before we got on, you said that in half a year or so, you're going to mosey off of your position at the traditional music forum and retire. And I said, oh, you're going to make music instead of doing stuff about it. And that was our little joke. Mm-hmm. But um, in fact, it puts you in a great position to look back. And I'm wondering, you know, is there any story you want to tell people about a moment, a program, an experience, uh, you know, something that stands out for you that might give them a sense of uh, what's so great about it, you know? Um, do you mean from from my kind of administrative work or in, in, in general? I was thinking traditional music forum, yeah. whatever that encompasses, but you know what? You can tell any story <laughs> you want. <laughs> um, well, I, I think the traditional music forum, when, when we began to open it out to membership, um, I think that was something that was that was very satisfying, uh, was just to see the, the membership numbers starting to click over uh, and, and uh, more and more organisations started to join, you know, right, right across the, the, the spectrum. And, uh, you know, that's when I thought, well, yeah, this is definitely the right thing to be doing because it was not only from, you know, different uh, different aspects of, of the work, but from every part of the country as well. Uh, and uh, the fact that uh, we, we then, you know, truly became a network, I think that was, that was uh, you know, a re- really satisfying thing. Um, and you know, I always thought that the network was a better model than um, a more kind of uh, formal approach, you know, because because it's just so much more flexible. And I, I kind of think of myself as the, you know, a, a network um, only works if if it's active, and uh, so I, that's kind of how I see. My role, or so my role, has has been the the kind of spider at the center of the of, of the web, keeping it in tension, and keeping the the lines between the different parts of the network open. Um, so when that began to happen, and you know we now have you know over a hundred, hundred and twenty members as part of our our network. Um, I just sort of yeah, that was very satisfying. Yeah, yeah. I I don't love spiders that much, but I'm I'm going to think about that network with the spider image because that image is so great. I just killed one this morning. I apologized to it first, but I don't think they really accept my apology, you know. Um, you know, we usually ask people about how their work is supported, and I guess I want to ask about your your organization um just because in different uh, geographic locations around the world. Some people are hustling with a day job to pay for their community-based work, mm-hmm. and some people get public subsidy, foundation grants, whatever. How mm-hmm. is uh, traditional arts and culture Scotland supported? Is it a mix of things? Uh, yeah, although it's, it's, uh, its core funding comes from um, the successor organisation to the Scottish Arts Council that I mentioned before, which is Creative Scotland. Uh, and they have a system of of regularly funded organisations, about a hundred organisations that are selected for um, three year funding, uh, and we are one of those. Um, but the money we get from them is also supplemented by some direct government funding, uh, and a little bit of um, of uh, charitable foundations as well. Uh, but the bulk of it comes from um, comes from Creative Scotland, and uh, we're in a situation where the three year funding, the last three year funding round was in twenty was in twenty eighteen, uh, and of course was due to 
end in 2021, but of course we were in the middle of the pandemic then. So they extended it by a year and then they've, they've just kept extending it by a year while they tried to figure out, um, because their, their intended reforms to uh, the funding system. And uh, we're right in the middle of a, an application process at the moment for the next round, which would be from 2025 to 2028. Um, so uh, we'll know the final result of that in October uh, this year. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, yeah, I mean, it's going to be interesting to see what, what happens with that. But just talking about the pandemic as well, <clears throat> there was, a, um, a, as part of the uh, support for the cultural sector that came, came out uh, at that time, uh, that there was a a very well-resourced government programme called Culture Collective, uh, and we were able to, to access funding from that as well. And the, the basic idea behind Culture Collective was was to um, promote place-based work and to, to make work available for, uh, for freelance practitioners. It was a kind of mini version of the, of the WPA that you've written about so much. It really was that. Um, and uh, <coughs> <excuse> me, <coughs> that enabled us to, um, this was just something that I, I wanted to talk about as well, it enabled tracks to, um, to do some, some really uh, uh, concentrated place-based work in, in different communities. We, we had an initiative called the People's Parish. And uh, it was kind of inspired by um, back in the 1790s, there was uh, a thing called the Statistical Account of Scotland. And uh, in that, uh, I think one of the aristocrats at the time, um, Lord Caithness or somebody, I think, um, enjoined uh, all the parish ministers in Scotland to write an account of their parish, and there's about eight hundred odd of these, uh, and they were they were asked to write about the the geology and topography, uh, flora and fauna, agriculture, economics, the spiritual state of the community, uh, you know, all of that, uh, how many public houses there were, and. Uh, um, uh, how many churches and so on and so on, and this, uh, and he succeeded in this. He managed to do a comprehensive uh, state of the nation that's still available uh, to read now, and uh, and then they did it again in eighteen forty five. So there's a st- second wow. statistical account as well, and uh, we'd been looking at place based work and 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 had a couple of sort of false starts with that because we were looking at, at um, areas that were that were just too big uh, and thought, well, how can we actually scale this down? And then we came to the statistical account and thought, well, what about a kind of parish-by-parish approach? And instead of a statistical account of Scotland, a creative account of Scotland for the 21st century in which... Instead of it being a top-down account, you know, by the parish minister or whatever, it would be a bottom-up account with artists working with communities in order to tell the story of that community, how they wanted to tell the story to themselves and to the and to the outside world. So uh, the People's Parish was, was born, and then when Culture Collective came along, it actually provided the resources to enable us to to um, to do that and uh, it's as I say it kind of turned the work of traditional arts and culture Scotland much more towards uh, community cultural development you know using the 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 lessons and the methods that we that we learned from uh, from doing this people's parish work and again um, you know your work with uh, new Creative community was was very much uh, a kind of inspirational um, 
thread behind all that. And uh, um, so we we managed to to work in nine different communities first time round, and then and then they renewed the funding. We managed to do another six, which we're working on at the moment. And uh, so what 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 that means is that that by placing com- uh, um, community cultural development at the heart of of, of Trax's work. Um, that's very much based on intangible cultural heritage. And then the work of the forums, the art forum forums, uh, then becomes to, um, to, to enable and to, and to continue that, that, and develop that intangible cultural heritage. So it's always there as a resource for communities to draw on. Uh, and that's kind of where we are at the minute. That sounds fabulous. Is there um, a link to that on the website? Uh, there's the parish, a web. Peoplesparish.scot. Peoplesparish.scot. Yeah. Okay, we'll be sure to include that. Also, David, I, I see that we, we should probably end, but um, before we do, uh, I think some of our for some of our listeners, intangible cultural heritage will be a meaningful phrase. They'll be connected to UNESCO or mm. more in Europe. In the States, you don't hear it too no. much. Explain to people a little bit what that means. Uh, well, it's, it's, it's a mouthful. Um, it, it is a kind of a bureaucratic concept that was um, uh, dreamed up by UNESCO. Um, partly because they didn't want to use terms like folklore because, uh, you know, they ha- that has kind of negative connotations when it's been used for uh, nefarious purposes in, in some regimes. Um, and I, I think it, it was seen as a kind of neutral uh, neutral term, but also with reference to the, uh, to the tangible cultural heritage because UNESCO had already uh, had the system for, you know, preserving uh, buildings, uh, significant buildings and so on. Uh, so it was a kind of intangible counterpart um, to that. Uh, and uh, they finally came up with a with a convention in 2003. Um, and uh, the idea behind that is that the countries who sign up to the convention, they develop their own inventories of uh, intangible cultural heritage um, and undertake to uh, to take steps to safeguard that. Uh, and UNESCO itself has a sort of representative list of the world's intangible cultural heritage. So uh, countries can actually nominate um, I, I, either practices that might be at risk or that they think are particularly distinctive and representative to go on to that, that, that world list. Um, most of the countries in the world have signed up to it. The exceptions were mostly the Anglophone countries with difficult uh, relationships to indigenous populations or, in the case of the UK, to its sort of imperial past. But um, the UK government actually just uh, signalled its intention to sign the convention just before Christmas. So that only really leaves the US, Canada, Australia and New Zealand. Of yeah, let's not hold our breath, yeah. shall we? <laughs> I think sometimes if we did a list of all the great things they didn't sign on to, um, people would be very surprised and impressed yeah. to see how long it was. You know. So yeah. So we're we're very much going to be involved in in um, encouraging people to, you know, examine their, uh, examine their local cultures and um, see if there's anything that would that would merit going on to the inventory, but also to to get away from lists and actually, you know, as part of this people's parish work that I'm talking about, actually get people to recognise and value their own local culture, you know, regardless of whether it's worthy of going on a list or not. I, th- I think that's that's a yeah, important thing. Yeah, that sounds like a great project. I'm going to go click around there as, as soon as we're done. But first, I want to say thank you, because um, 
very nice to see your face. If all our listeners could see how much we were enjoying this conversation, <laughs> I'm sure they would enjoy that too. Um, but really, really good to hear about the great work that you've been doing. And I'm so grateful yeah. to you for coming and having this conversation. Well, thanks very much for, for asking me. I hope I haven't rambled too much, but uh, uh, it's been a pleasure. And uh, yeah, yeah, I look forward to it yeah. appearing on the airwaves. It will. Thanks so much, yeah. David. And you didn't ramble at all, by the way. It was like perfect sentences, like somebody could have written them. <laughs> now that you've heard the podcast, you can go to the website to find out more details, including references and links. The website's at meow.net. That's M-I-A-A-W dot net. See you there.